Welcome to CV Now, your podcast from Houston Methodist to Baking CV Education, and I'm your host, George Tripsis. Although there have been significant advances in reducing the overall burden of cardiovascular disease in the global population, there's one group with decidedly less progress, young adults. In general, there's been a lot of advances in, in uh, reducing the burden of cardiovascular disease. And we've all seen fewer myocardial infarctions, uh, in part perhaps due to statins or uh, from less smoking. But when we are looking at those reductions, they have not occurred as much in younger individuals. In today's podcast, preventative cardiologist Dr. Karam Nasir leads a panel discussion of the emerging epidemics of acute MI and stroke in patients in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, looking at the underlying risk factors and tips for risk assessment, screenings, guidelines, and more. Dr. Nasir is the Chief Division of Cardiovascular Prevention and Wellness at Houston Methodist Hospital and co-director for the Center of Outcomes Research. He's joined by Dr. Ron Blankenstein, Associate Director of the Cardiovascular Imaging Program and Director of Computed Tomography for Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Salim Varani, Director of Cardiovascular Fellowship Program at the Baylor College of Medicine. And Dr. Hader Warach, Associate Director of Heart Failure Program at VA Boston Healthcare System. Good evening, everyone. Hi, this is Khuram Nasser. Uh, just to introduce myself, I'm the Chief Division of Cardiovascular Prevention and Wellness and the Co-Director for Center for Outcomes Research at Houston Methodist. I'm honored to have few of my favorite guests out here joining me today, starting with Ron Blankstein, uh, Associate uh, Director of uh, Cardiac CT program and preventive cardiology at Brigham Women and an associate professor at the Howard School of Medicine. He's also the president of Society of Cardiac CT and a board member for American Society of Preventive Cardiology. It's also a pleasure to have Professor Salim Virani uh, from Baylor Medical College. He is also the director, program director of uh, their clinical cardiology fellowship, um, as well as he leads the section for cardiovascular prevention at American College of Cardiology. And it's also an honor to have him with us on the board for American Society of Preventive Cardiology. And finally, a good friend of mine, uh, Heather Waraj from Boston. He's the associate program director of uh, the heart failure program at the VA. Uh, associated with uh, Brigham and Women and Howard Medical so School assistant professor. He wears many other hats. Um, mostly you would know him from his remarkable couple of books that came out in the last few years, uh, uh, more um, modern history on that. But more importantly, his latest book, State of the Heart, exploring the history, science, and future of cardiac disease. So. Thank you so much for all of you joining us. So as a part of our first inauguration CV prevention, I, I truly wanted to speak something that is becoming an emerging phenomena that we are seeing a lot of cardiovascular disease in the young, strokes and MI. So as a preventive cardiologist, um, I wanted to thank the entire discipline of cardiovascular disease that we have seen over the last four decades, a steady reduction in the deaths from cardiovascular disease, including stroke and MI, and not only that, but also a reduction in the number of cases. And kudos to, I would say, innovation in the technology, access, preventive therapies, policies. But also over the last two decades, we all saw a parallel change in our society. Um, change in our sedentary lifestyle, access to healthcare, 
diet, all of these issues, stress leading to another growing epidemic of diabetes, obesity, hypertension. Coming to a point that we are seeing that the gains, losses in the gains that we made in our fight against cardiovascular disease and that to a point where the image I always had of an elderly in individual clutching his chest with symptoms of chest pain. Now, it's not too infrequent that we see that in a lot of the young people coming out together. So now, this is kind of the most disturbing thing. And so now, just opening the discussion, I would like to bring in Ron Blankstein. Now, Ron, you have been at the forefront of trying to understand why and how we have actually transitioned from this cardiovascular disease burden going moving mostly from the elderly and a rise in the young with your efforts towards building a long-term dynamic registry at Brigham. Just from a 40,000 feet view, is it true that we are moving in the wrong directions? What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, first of all, Coram, thank you very much for having me join the program here. Really delighted to be part of this program together with uh, Heather and uh, Salim. Um, you're asking, I think, the, the, the important question here, first of all, is like the direction. And as you stated, in general, there's been a lot of advances in, in uh, reducing the burden of cardiovascular disease. And we've all seen fewer myocardial infarctions, uh, in part perhaps due to statins or uh, from less smoking. But when we are looking at those reductions, they have not occurred as much in younger individuals. And of course, the big question is why? Um, uh, and I, I started this registry called the Young MI Registry when I was on the inpatient service at Brigham. And I remember in one particular week, uh, half my service was all young individuals who were coming in with myocardial infarctions. And I, I thought that one of the striking things is that when these individuals come in, uh, they all think that they're healthy. None of them, of course, thought that they're going to be having a heart attack the next day. These are folks, uh, men and women in their 30s and 40s for the most part. Uh, and they all think that they're healthy. And you start looking into their uh, profile, and it turns out that the vast majority of them have underlying risk factors. So in the, in the Young MI registry and other registries, we found that over 90% of individuals who have a heart attack at a young age have underlying risk factors. So this notion that these are events that are happening out of the blue, which is what patients often perceive, are, are actually not correct. So then, of course, the big question is, well, what are these, uh, what are these risk factors? Um, and when we look at epidemiologic data, uh, the two risk factors that have increased uh, in the most dramatic fashion, not just in the US, but around the world are obesity and diabetes. And we're really seeing this no matter where you live in the US, you're seeing an increase in, in diabetes and obesity. So that's an important one. We're seeing that half of the individuals that have a heart attack at a young age are smokers. And, and that's just a staggering statistic, uh, one out of two. Uh, we're seeing diabetes uh, in, in 20 to 30% of these individuals. And then we're seeing uh, the use of substances uh, such as cocaine and marijuana uh, in at least 10% of these individuals. Um, so, so this is important as we start to kind of tease out why are these events happening? Some of these are of course traditional risk factors that we all recognize, but some of them are risk factors that may be even more important in, in young individuals. Uh, and then of course there's the, there's the genetic component. I think when individuals have a 
am I at a young age? They all think, well, it must be my genes. You know, my uncle had a heart attack. Somebody in my family had a heart attack. But it actually turns out that the genetic component may be a relatively small uh, proportion. Uh, in fact, when we look at clinical criteria for familial hypercholesterolemia, it's really the minority of individuals, uh, far less than 10% of the folks that actually meet those criteria. So for the most part, uh, the key is to identify risk factors and to identify them early on. Uh, and, and I think that's where we have the most opportunity to make a difference. And of course, I, I guess throughout this discussion, we can talk about how do we battle some of these risk factors like obesity and diabetes and hyperlipidemia. How do we identify them early? How can we treat them early? I think these are kind of the big, uh, the big questions we should all be asking. Well, very so sobering insights, Ron, about thinking about the invincibility in the young, but actually the unrecognized burden of the risk factors. Again, a moving target that what we have seen shifting norms within our society. And as you pointed out, diabetes, smoking, and obesity being a major one. So on the same line, so Salim, I know that you almost for a decade since I've known you, you have led national efforts in building surveillances across the country working with ACC in the form of NCDR and also in a very unique population at the VA where you have truly studied this dynamic changes that have occurred over the last decade. Do you see the same signal in that population? Are the challenges and the changing risk factors almost the same noise and the same issues in that very specific population? Or what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so uh, I would again uh, thank you for inviting me to be part of this uh, great panel. And it's great to see Heather and Ron, uh, great, uh, great friends and great colleagues. So, our experience really at the VA system is is very consistent with Ron said. You know, there is this misconception that if if someone had heart attack or stroke or for that matter, peripheral arterial disease at a young age, that a lot of it is probably beyond their control in terms of it, it may be bad genes. But what we are found, what we have found is again, very consistent with Ron, just what Ron just said, that a lot of it can be explained by traditional risk factors either those risk factors were not picked up by clinicians, by us, or they were picked up, but the control was poor on the part of the patient either, or the healthcare system really did not take care of them the way the healthcare should have. Uh, the other aspect of this is that the risk factor profile is again, very similar. So the same risk factors that Ron was mentioning, obesity, diabetes, of course, there are some risk factors that are very, uh, very individualized when it comes to uh, young individuals. And Ron alluded to uh, the, the substance abuse. We are, of course, seeing that in the VA healthcare system as well, not just cigarette smoking, but then going beyond cigarette smoking with marijuana, cocaine use. And then it seems to be additive as well. So a lot of traditional risk factors, of course, we have some novel risk factors like uh, rheumatologic disorders that might be um, more important than younger patients for having MI or stroke. There are, of course, you know, risk enhancers or risk factors that are specific to women now, you know, pregnancy-induced hypertension, preeclampsia. Those are also being seen. And then there is this bucket of genetic markers, whether those are genetic markers that have an intermediate phenotype, something like FH that Ron alluded to, or these are just these risk scores that we do not know what intermediate phenotype somebody might develop. I think the, 
one thing that is very positive out of it is that a lot of it can be explained by traditional risk factors. So there is a lot of control that we as clinicians, as well as patients have, that we can actually identify hopefully some of these patients early on and then improve the treatment in them as well. Thanks, Salim. So basic gist is a lot of behavioral lifestyle risk factors. and. But how do we address that? And Heather, I know that you have a very unique perspective on this issue in your book, State of the Heart. You gave us that evolution gave us heart disease, but we are not stuck with it. That was one of your quote. And in, in The Guardian, you said that. But at the same time, I think we are doing everything possible in the modern history to undo that. How, how, on a societal perspective, do you see this trajectory happening to a point where in 1946, as you pointed out, they were literally, we were unfamiliar. We started seeing this burden of cardiovascular disease more in young. All the efforts went to a point where at least when I was training, I was, it, there was hardly any young patient coming in with heart attack and stroke. And now when I transition to a faculty position, and just as Ron pointed out, we are seeing almost 15 to 20% individuals who are young. So on this whole history trajectory, starting from the late 1940s, how did we get here? And where? what are we doing incorrect? What are the barriers and how do we address that? Um, so thank you uh, for inviting me and uh, it's a uh, honor to be part of this uh, really great panel. And uh, yeah, the history of heart disease is uh, extremely fascinating. Uh, you know, if you, you know, if in the arc of human history, heart disease as a killer is still a relatively new phenomenon. So we know that people have had atherosclerosis, you know, even when they've discovered mummies or they've had these, you know, frozen sort of uh, bodies from thousands of years ago, they've always had some evidence of atherosclerosis, but atherosclerosis as a cause of death is still a relatively new phenomenon. And you know, some of this is because of, I think, the things that we've already mentioned. Uh, you know, now we grow old enough to develop atherosclerosis. We've been gotten better at taking care of other conditions, but also our lifestyle seems to be really at odds with heart health. And I think what we're seeing now with young people is really a result of the mistakes that we've made 10, 15 years ago. So you know, we had this big pandemic of childhood obesity and now all those children have now are starting to enter middle age. Um, we've seen a similar thing with diabetes, and we've really not done anything about addressing these risk factors early because you know we've, we've become so focused on taking care of MIs and sort of, you know relatively older people that I think we've missed the ball as far as you know trying to address these problems at an even earlier stage. Uh, and I think that's what we're starting to see is that the current cohort of people in middle age is more obese and has more diabetes than, than ever before. And I think that's part of the resurgence, uh, that is part of, I think, behind the resurgence of this disease um, that we're starting to see. So again, the fact is uh, we are stuck with it and this is a growing epidemic. I guess more and more we'll be seeing a lot of these young patients coming in with heart attack. Now, Ron, so my basic challenge, and again, I'm sure it's shared with a lot of primary care and other cardiologists. We are so attuned to managing, assessing risk in patients who is an elderly coming in with a heart attack or stroke. Now, suddenly a 46 year old 
presents with an MI and as a follow-up comes to your clinic, what are the five things that you would advise all of us to at least know why and what's his risk are? What are the five practical tips you can give us and our audience in that regard for risk assessment? Yeah. So I guess you're asking the question after someone already had yes. BMI. So this is kind of secondary prevention. And this is, of course, something that I'm sure all of us face. Somebody has an MI and they're now coming. It was to, to see us in the office. It was a scary experience. And they say, how can I reduce my risk of having another one? Uh, and obviously, I think it's important to go back and look at the records, uh, uh, review the angiogram. How much underlying atherosclerosis and what was the mechanism? Is this a, a single plaque rupture and the rest of their coronaries are uh, are, are clean with that plaque or do they have a large amount of diffuse plaque? Uh, I, I think it's really important to try to understand the underlying mechanism in young people. Were they smokers? Were they having un using an underlying uh, substances that may have uh, caused this? Uh, for instance, marijuana, I mentioned that before. Most people don't think that that's really a risk factor until they come in and see us in clinic and we've uh, certainly now uh, seen that it is. So when I see that, that, that patient, um, I think some of the generic advice I, I would give without knowing the, the particular uh, case that we are discussing. Um, first of all, uh, getting the, first of all, I would start with lifestyle. Uh, of course, we're gonna talk about medications, but lifestyle uh, remaining uh, active, I think is gonna be very important for cardiovascular health, both for managing lipids, for managing obesity, for managing their blood sugar levels, uh, for uh, even improving things like endothelial function. So physical activity, you know, our guidelines recommend at least uh, 30 minutes for at least five times a, a week. And I, I tell people that's the absolute minimum. That's the, that's the floor, that's not the ceiling. So regular physical activity will be important. Uh, the other thing uh, is diet. I, I think a thing that's driving a lot of the underlying uh, comorbidities that we are seeing is, is diet. Uh, and what we have seen uh, lead to, to obesity and diabetes is a diet that's high in, in refined, refined carbohydrates and processed foods uh, and a very large amount of uh, sugar sweetened beverages in the diet. Uh, and all these things uh, in the absence of caloric restriction have contributed to, to obesity. Uh, so I think from a diet perspective, the, the key there, as suggested by all our guidelines, is a diet that is mostly plant-based that reduces the consumption of uh, refined carbohydrates and focuses on whole grains uh, that's high in fruits and vegetables uh, and that tries to minimize uh, um, saturated fats and, and trans fats. So certainly uh, there's a lot more we can talk about, about diet, but this is a really important one that uh, I talk to all the patients. The other uh, thing is after NMI, for most of these patients, we're gonna talk about uh, probably dual antiplatelet uh, therapy uh, perhaps in some patients, antithrombotic uh, therapy, and I think whether they they uh, receive the stent uh, will, will influence that at least for the short uh, uh, time. Whether what kind of dual antiplatelet therapy they'll be on, lipid lowering therapy becomes very important. Um, I think we've all recognized that getting the LDL as low as possible is something that we are now doing, and we're much more aggressive than we used to be about that. Uh, and then we are looking at other. Um, modifiable uh, risk factors. Uh, for instance, if triglycerides are, are high, uh, maybe uh, that patient might be a candidate for EPA. Uh, I would check lipoprotein A in all patients who have an MI at a young age. Uh, and certainly there's some exciting uh, therapies in the pipeline, two specific therapies that are aimed to lower the liver production of lipoprotein A. And while those are not available yet, that is something that 
very much, I think we will uh, uh, see in the near future, particularly if the trials are favorable. Uh, obviously, I didn't touch in other things like making sure they're, they're not uh, smoking, which will be uh, important as well, uh, controlling their hypertension. Um, I think those, that's at least where, where I would start. So, great, great summary, great review on uh, how to assess risk and management goals. It seems trying to be as aggressive as possible. So, Heather, um, Ron's group just had a publication in Jack on Monday that clearly showed that a significant proportion of individuals uh, who have a drop in their EF post-MI, especially in the young, do not recover, almost 40% of those. And they tend to have a tenfold high risk of mortality in the next five to 10 years. Now, you being a heart failure specialist, are you seeing a lot of young individuals post-MI coming with heart failure? Is there anything we can do to further assess their risk? What's contributing to the lack of recovery and how do we mitigate their long-term risk? Yeah, so a uh, great question. And I would say that, you know, everyone listening should definitely go check that study out. I, I found it extremely sort of helpful to just get a sense for, you know, what the what the life of a patient, a young patient who has an MI might look like, depending on whether they recover their EF or not. And, you know, I think the key thing here is that, you know, one of the things that we're seeing uh, is that even as, you know, we mentioned at the start of the program that, We've seen improvements in ischemic heart disease. There's some data that we're working on that's gonna be out soon that shows that actually heart failure mortality has gone up since the last couple of years. And I think that just speaks to how difficult a condition this is, uh, regardless of you know how old you are. But I think certainly in these young patients, it's really important that we uh, really apply everything that we can do as far as um, not just lifestyle, but I'll just, you know, go sort of step forward and, you know, really focus on medical therapy. Uh, so, you know, beyond just the usual DAP therapy and the ACE and ARP, you know, we are lucky that we're at a time where we have really a lot of new agents uh, available to us. You know, I certainly use ARNIs very frequently, and I think that they can really have a very you know, significant benefit, not just in sort of long-term outcomes, but really quality of life, functional status, et cetera. And then obviously there's a lot of excitement around you know, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. And now we know that the um, indication has you know, expanded beyond just simply uh, patients who have uh, diabetes. And I really think that these are therapies that we really need to start introducing. I think partly also because, you know, a lot of times one of the issues that we run into when we have all these medications on board uh, is low blood pressure. And the fact that these are relatively blood pressure sparing, even though they can have a bit of a diuretic effect is really, I think, helps. Um, um, I, th I think help makes it easy to start these. And I think that if we can do that before the onset of other sort of end organ dysfunction, like renal dysfunction, et cetera, I think that that's important, but I think the, the I think as far as young people is concerned, I think throwing all these medications at them, I mean, it's a challenging thing. You're a young person. You you, you may have never taken a medication in your entire life. Um, it, that that MI may have been the first time you've ever been to a hospital, and now suddenly you're on five six different therapies. Uh, and I and so at least you know I'm all, we actually see that we struggle a lot with adherence in these patients as well. Even patients who've had heart transplantation, some of our younger patients are actually 
uh, at very high risk for non-adherence. So I think that's where building a relationship with them, having very you know sort of open communication, developing a trusting bond uh, with them, making them feel and getting them to be really engaged in their healthcare is I think a really sort of key step, uh, especially for I think young patients who for home, uh, you know, many of whom, as you mentioned, may have felt, you know, completely invincible, may have felt like, oh, this was just a lightning bolt. And now, now that I'm feeling better, I'm you know, off the races. So I would sort of urge that even more so than our, uh, our older population, the younger population just needs more time. They just need uh, and uh, really upfront so that they trust that we have their best uh, interest in mind. And Kurum, if I may add something to that, Please. because uh, while we're talking about it, uh, I think this is this is key. Uh, what what uh, Heather just mentioned, these adherence issues. I mean, we're finding the same thing that if you take a young patient with MI or stroke or or peripheral arterial disease and compare them to an older adult who had an event, I mean, the adherence is almost fifty percent of them in in our neck of the woods. Stat, they're not taking statins. They're not adherent. Uh, so it becomes that much more important to meet the patient where they are. Uh, and since the, the overall cumulative benefit of, of adhering to lifestyle as well as medications is extremely high, I think we need to definitely look at it even more broadly, look at things that might be driving that non-adherence in a young patient way more than an average patient. And the other aspect was that I think one thing we've learned from this COVID-19 pandemic is Thing we can learn something from that is that this can be an opportunistic screening as well because we already have identified an individual that is vulnerable but then we have that entire family now whether that high risk is because a traditional risk factor is there there could be familial clustering of traditional risk factors or it could be genetic markers whatever it be using this opportunity to do screening for the family members as well who may be young whether it's lifestyle related things or other risk factors. So making sure that we look at this person beyond just the patient, but look at the entire family. And I think in Europe, they have done a much better job when they, when they get these young patients compared to us here in US, where we've said, where we've kept a very narrow focus on just the patient, but actually moving that out a little bit beyond the patient to the immediate family, I think might allow us to prevent a lot more events early on. So I just thought I'll, I'll add that on top of all the excellent points that were that were just I, made. I think that's a really important point. And all of us, when we see patients in the hospital after an MI, the family members are there. And it's a, it's absolutely a, a teachable moment, not just for the patient, but for the family members. Um, but in fact, I think it was Quorum who actually showed this because he published a seminal paper that's showing that having a sibling uh, was an MI at an early age is a stronger risk factor than having a parent was an MI at an early age. So I'll turn on our moderator, Quorum, to, to tell me if I stated that correctly. No, absolutely. I think so. What, what you stated is correctly. There is this genetic predisposition. And what we have no, noticed, the earlier the individuals presenting with premature are more likely to have a genetic predisposition. And now, in the course of the discussion, we'll definitely talk some on those details, the pros and cons. And I think so the discussion, what what I took well from, not only from a patient, but a physician standpoint that we may be giving our patients, young individuals with MI and stroke, the benefit of youth and thinking they may be doing well. Actually, it may be the opposite. 
it actually may be they may be worse off and we may need to do much more than what I may am attuned and mentally more prepared to be more aggressive with my elderly patient with CBD. It may be the other way around. I need to do much more out here. So on the same line, Salim, um, stroke, it's not that we're just seeing heart attacks, but actually an increase in, uh, that's a sorry state of stroke, more, I would say more disability, more cost, uh, more, more huge economic burden and quality of life. And 15% of all strokes right now in the nation are happening in individuals less than 40 years of age. Now, why is that? It's, now, we spoke about recreational drugs and I, I, I'll be very honest, I may not do the best job in screening for some of my patients, but for stroke especially, it seems like Acute use of cocaine in the last 24 hours would be a six-fold higher risk for a stroke than an MI. Now, how do we deal with that? That's the question, and I know that is an issue that we're seeing more and more also in vulnerable populations. I don't know how is that at the VA and in the young. How do we address that? Because that's an epidemic that's growing, and I love to hear Heather's thought from uh, a rural health perspective on that too. Sure, uh, and, and and again, uh, we all know that recreational drug use is associated with not just an increased risk of MI, but also stroke as well, and especially when it comes to cocaine. These acute surges in blood pressure can be a major problem. And I think the important thing to realize here is that with stroke, it's not just the ischemic stroke we're dealing with. We're actually dealing almost one third of these strokes in young could be hemorrhagic strokes, whether it's subarachnoid hemorrhage or intracerebral hemorrhage. And there we really don't have therapy. I mean, with ischemic stroke, MI, you can do a lot. With hemorrhagic strokes, there's really not a whole lot left. And that is why if we see the trend, it's even worse for stroke in terms of outcomes for young compared to MI. Of course, we have a lot of ground to cover uh, with the young MI as well, but on the stroke side, it's even more difficult to actually improve their outcomes because a lot of these youngs, proportionally speaking, there's a lot more hemorrhagic stroke in the young compared to uh, the older adults. So that's one aspect. And I think the, the second aspect is that this recreational drug abuse that we are seeing, not just cocaine, but even with marijuana, there's there's a very good Australian study showing that if you were, had used it in the last one week, you were five times, you had a five times higher likelihood of actually having a stroke uh, in the next one year uh, when, when people were surveyed. Now, is it a direct association or is it a marker of something? That's perfectly fine. But identifying that high-risk phenotype of a patient who is actually who has this issue of drug abuse, whether that is related to poor control of other risk factors or whether it is because of the drug itself. I think identifying those patients is the first step and Ron can probably chime in that I think there is some gap there from, from a clinical clinician's perspective as well where we don't routinely look for drug abuse as a risk factor in these young patients, whether it's patients coming in with MI or patients coming in with stroke as well. A lot of times the idea is that if they have traditional risk factors, well, traditional risk factors might be causing it. Let me not even measure uh, a drug, drug profile to look for drugs. Well, they could be present concomitantly and both of them could be contributory. So actually identifying those patients is perhaps one of the most important things that we need to do 
when it comes to stroke. And then again, making sure that we work with them, both in terms of not just the acute treatment, but in this case, rehab is extremely important uh, compared to even more than, than myocardial infarction. So those are some of the things that I would add when it comes to stroke, worrying about hemorrhagic aspects of it, and then recreational drug use, again, being associated with, uh, with, with strokes, uh, as much as am I. Wow. So, I, think, I think Salim is, is, uh, is spot on here, as always. The, the fact is that we just don't do a good job recognizing the at-risk individual. And we see this all the time. People come in the hospital and it's such a shock. Why did I have a stroke or a heart attack? I was totally healthy. I'm in my 30s. I'm in my 40s. Uh, and I think this is something that we have seen in, the, in our young MI registry, that if you look at individuals who come in with a heart attack and you were to calculate the risk score a week or a month, a year beforehand, if you're the primary care physician seeing them in the clinic, almost always they are classified as low risk using our risk equations. And as a result, we are far less likely to treat them with lipid lowering therapies. Uh, even, our, even our hypertension guidelines now uh, use the ASCVD risk score, which is very much driven by age, to decide on blood pressure therapies, at least for some of the categories. Uh, so I think that the failure to recognize the at-risk patient leads to this cascade that then we are less aggressive about treating the risk factors, uh, less likely to uh, start lipid-lowering therapies, um, and um, we kind of miss the boat sometimes. Now, obviously it's challenging because the denominator is very large. There's a lot of individuals in the 30s and 40s, and we don't want to uh, say that they're all at risk for MI and they all need to be on medications. That's certainly not the right message. But uh, I do think there's a lot of room for improvement in how we identify risk for young people. So Ron, on the same point, uh, when we're talking about recreational drug use, it seems like now in the U.S. we have more marijuana smokers than cigarette smokers. Um, what would you do? Do you think we need to be as aggressive with statins and dual antiplatelet considering the same pathway of metabolism that may impact their drug use as well as excretion? pharmacokinetics, how, how do we adopt to someone a statin dose or maybe a dual antiplatelet if someone's a marijuana user? Anything specific that we need to keep in mind? Yeah, I, I don't really make any particular modifications. I think the more important thing is to ask these uh, individuals uh, about their, their use of substances. Um, I think cigarette is still by far the worst thing. And in fact, the single uh, most important intervention someone can do the day they have their heart attack is not to go on another medicine, it's to stop smoking. The risk reduction associated with tobacco cessation is greater than any medication we can, we can think of. Um, but then beyond the cigarettes, there's of course the discussion on e-cigarettes and I'm, I'm sometimes I'm used, I ask individuals in the hospital, do you smoke cigarettes? And they say no. And on day three or four, uh, they say, well, but I use e-cigarettes, but you never asked me about that. You only asked me if I smoke. Uh, I made that mistake before. So uh, a lot of people tell you they don't smoke. They may be using other other substances. So I think it's important to ask about that. And of course, we have to ask everybody about marijuana, especially now that it's uh, in legal in, in, in many states, including our own here in Massachusetts. Um, and when we identify that, I think the most important thing is to tell individuals that that actually places them at a higher risk because that is a, that is a surprise. Well, most people know that cigarettes are, is not a good thing. 
most of my patients still think that uh, marijuana is actually a benign substance when it comes to the heart. So that education is really important. Um, in terms of your question on modifying their pharmacotherapy, uh, really most of our therapies, I, I, I don't think we have to do any uh, particular modification. So certainly there's some interactions to, to think about, but for the most part, those are uh, an exception. So among the special risk group, what Heather, you just showed recently in your JAMA paper, huge disparities in the rural constituency as compared to urban. Now, this is a unique situation. We have 60 million individuals, I guess, plus minus living in rural constituencies, low socioeconomic, all the social disparities, health literacy levels would be on the lower side, low education, low access high recreational drug use, we, we know that. H how do we address this growing menace? What are the solutions? Are any lessons that we can learn? Because in the end, if truly we want to address this growing burden, this is a group that we are rapidly seeing a rise in cardiovascular disease, especially the stroke and, and the stroke in this population and also the cardiovascular death. What have we learned so far? Yeah, so, um, so this is, I think, a very important uh, area of investigation. Uh, so we had a recent paper in which we used CDC data to really look at uh, age-adjusted uh, mortality rates uh, from 1999 to 2017. And uh, we looked at all patients with cardiovascular disease. This included stroke. Uh, and we found that the abs that not only are rural uh, people who live in rural areas at much higher risk for cardiovascular disease, but that disparity is actually the absolute risk is actually doubled uh, over this time span. So instead of narrowing, this disparity is really um, widening. And we've in fact seen that it is really in this sort of age group of patients between 25 and 64, uh, less than 65, which is really driving this trend. In fact, you know, we mentioned at the start of the program that we've seen a reduction in cardiovascular mortality rates, and we do see that um, in large metropolitan and small to medium metropolitans, but actually in recent years, we've seen that um, trend start to get reversed. Uh, and I, the other thing that I'll add for stroke is that one group that is particularly concerning, and these are unpublished data, is actually Hispanic patients. So we know that at least for cardiovascular, for heart disease, patients who are, are of uh, Hispanic ethnicity are at lower risk for heart disease in general. Uh, but for stroke, actually, that's not the case. For stroke, uh, Hispanics are at much higher risk, and the rate of increase has actually been the highest for this specific group. So I would say, this, just an aside, uh, that this is really an important and sort of growing group, and we don't really understand why, that we, why we're seeing that. Having said that, and you know, rural areas, you mentioned that there's a big access issue. And a lot of times when we talk about rural areas, the focus ends up being on rural hospitals. And we've seen that there has been this sort of really, uh, rural hospital closures have really, there's been this really, you know, I, I hate overusing the word pandemic or epidemic, but really there's been a, a, a spate of rural hospital closures uh, at record pace. But less attention is paid to outpatient management of cardiovascular disease risk factors in rural areas. Outpatient care is almost, uh, is really very, very little in these areas. They don't really get reimbursed much. Uh, and I think that's where uh, there may, uh, one glimmer of hope that I have uh, is really telemedicine. Uh, 
because of COVID-19 especially, uh, a lot of the regular regulatory barriers to COVID, uh, telemedicine have gone away. And my hope is that this is going to be one of those sort of silver linings from this uh, from this current pandemic is that as we have been forced to move towards telemedicine, that we use this as an opportunity um, to increase how uh, we can access patients who may not usually have access to a specialist such as a you know, preventive cardiologist, or even in at times a, a primary care physician. Uh, you know, how we do that is going to be important. There are a lot of telemedical services, uh, but I think that's really an opportunity for I think all of us to think about well, now that we now that we've really seen this quantum leap and now are able to reach patients and can have a much wider footprint. How do we make the best use of this technology? Oh, so. Now, after having a long, sobering discussion around the burden, the challenges, the specific risk factors, and I guess just new insights on how aggressive we need to be on this, let's shift gear and maybe talk about how can we prevent all of this. So, Ron, you just mentioned, of course, you highlighted the challenge that we have here. 70% of individuals who present with MI are going to be classified as low risk by the traditional uh, guidelines. And Selim, you have been part of those guidelines and I know that the consensus is evolving. It's the risk assessment is mainly age dependent. We have lifetime risk, but how do you really incorporate that? And what do we do with the 45 year old who is presenting with one risk factors, a mildly elevated LDL and maybe has an unclear family history of premature heart disease? I know that the guidelines have come up with some new methodology and especially risk-enhancing factors. What are your thoughts? What should our primary care physicians, cardiologists know about that and how do we incorporate in our management? So should I take that yes, question? Yes, please. Or, That's for uh, you, yeah, Sunil. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a, it's a fair point uh, yeah. because you know, guidelines usually rely on quite a bit of evidence. And this is an area where, of course, when we look at risk assessment, that's generally limited to patients who are mostly middle-aged and a little bit on the older side. So 40 to 75, 80-year-old, 40 to 79 is generally the ones that we use for our whole cohort risk equations. I think the important aspect when clinicians are looking at these patients in their 20s, 30s, and I think to some extent, even when they are teenagers, I think looking at it more as wellness rather than risk factors will be helpful. I'll, I'll give you some example. We know that if you have premature menarche, that's a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. A pediatrician sees that, should raise an alarm bell. We know that a lot of patients who are obese, they were obese even when they were a teenager or in their early 20s. What do we do to actually identify these folks early on? So you may not do a risk assessment per se. You may do a lifetime risk. You may not have a 10-year risk, but you can count individual risk factors. And as Ron's work has shown, and we have seen that in this VA, large VA registry we have of premature cardiovascular disease, the vital registry, what we're finding out is that a lot of them may not meet that 10-year threshold, but a lot of them have these one or two risk factors. So what if we pick them up early on in their teenage years, in their 20s and 30s, and work on individual risk factors? That's one aspect of it. The second is using these, uh, what I call uh, opportunities we have for, for opportunistic screening. Uh, again, same thing, a pediatrician. 
a woman who is delivering her baby. She had pregnancy-induced hypertension, preeclampsia. Well, we know they are higher risk. So how do we then work on these women for their lifestyle that they have, looking for the intermediate phenotype of hypertension that might be the intermediate phenotype that could then lead to cardiovascular disease, gestational diabetes? How do we then keep an eye on them? So, you know, a patient is seen by a pediatrician or a woman, it may be another OBGYN who will see that patient. Then they are seen in their mid-30s, early 40s by a primary care clinician. There are at least three or four times when that patient can be touched by, is touched by the healthcare system. So where do we pick up and why do we say that it's only the responsibility when a primary care clinician is seeing that patient? Well, it starts early on. So having that kind of a look towards it I think will help us till we get to a point where we can actually stratify, stratify risk in these very young adults and identify those who are, who are going to be really benefiting a lot from preventive therapies. And when I say preventive therapies, really, I'm opening it up for lifestyle because, you know, what we're talking about up till now is this high risk approach, right? You identify those who are very, very high risk and you do risk factor management of them. What do we what can we do in, in teenage years, early 20s, early 30s is really the population-based approach. Even if you change the population blood pressure by two millimeters of mercury, well, the population attributable benefit will be extremely high. So what do we do in terms of identifying these things early on? What do we do in terms of working on lifestyle? And then what do we do to pick up these intermediate phenotypes that are happening before somebody has an event. I think that is where we'll need to focus on when it comes to these young individuals, because it is, after all, a lot of it is data-free zone in terms of active therapies. We have some data related to subclinical atherosclerosis, which I'm sure we'll discuss. We have some data related to the risk factor burden. We don't have as much data that if you treat them, it leads to improvement in outcomes. We have some of that, but not to the same level that we do for older adults. So I think we have to look at it from a population-based perspective rather than identifying those very, very high-risk individuals when it comes to these younger age groups. I think that's, if we change our, 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 our approach a little bit, I think we might be better off when it comes to these younger adults. That's, that's what, how I would look at it. So I think so. That's right. definitely from a 40,000 feet view is, look, at every access point, every opportunity utilized to reassess and recalibrate and re-identify those who are at high risk. Let's assume we find someone with one or two risk factors that are modifiable. Apart from lifestyle intervention, the question I always get from my primary care doctors, should I start a statin? A 42-year-old who has 5 to 6% average risk, maybe has a family history. Ron, what's your thoughts? Should we do something more? Um, anything yeah. around subclinical atherosclerosis, calcium testing? There's a lot of debate. That's a yeah. lot of... Uh, so, so first of all, I, I, I totally agree with Salim. It's all about starting early. But but now let's say we're, we're seeing that 45-year-old. I would still start with all the traditional risk factors. And if someone has those risk factors, even if the risk score tells you they're low risk, I would not be overly reassured. And I think at that point, you can start having a discussion uh, on diet, on exercise, on blood pressure control, on blood sugar control, and of course, on lipid lowering therapy. Now, the question is, what if you're uncertain? What if the patient says, you know, I really have a strong preference to avoid stand therapy. Uh, am I really at risk? 
Um, and at that point, we say, well, what else can we do to assess uh, risk? Uh, we talk about uh, lipoprotein A as being one measure, which, which uh, I think is important to do. 20% of the patients will have an elevated lipoprotein A. Um, I, I think another thing is obviously to take a close look at the family history. If there is a family history of premature events in multiple family members, that uh, of course will elevate the risk. But despite all that, there is a lot of reluctance to be on therapy, especially in young individuals. Uh, and a lot of these folks come and see us in, in clinic and want to know what else can, can be done. And I, I think today one of the most effective tests we can do is a coronary artery calcium scan which is a very uh, a quick uh, test that really looks for the presence of plaque in the arteries uh, by looking at calcium. And what we have learned is that in young individuals, the presence of any plaque, even if it's a small amount, is highly predictive of future risk. And to me, that sets uh, a big alarm if I see plaque in young individuals um, that we need to be more aggressive. Uh, I think the challenge was, was calcium scoring is if it's uh, zero in a young person, especially uh, under the age of uh, 45 to 40, uh, it may not always be reassuring because maybe the plaque hasn't calcified. Uh, so we don't tell them you're off the hook just because we don't see evidence of calcium. But, uh, but I think an important message is any, any plaque, in fact, anywhere in the body, whether it's through carotid ultrasound or whether it's through uh, 3D ultrasound of the femoral arteries, which uh, some studies have been doing, the presence of any plaque in a young person should really uh, make us all concerned as, as clinicians and we need to convey to patients that this is something that has to be changed and it's something that we have to be aggressive about. So again, the message what I'm getting here in the young, the uncertainty and the refinement is really trying to find if they are more at risk. For example, in a 60-year-old, maybe the value of a calcium score of zero may be more prominent, whereas in a 43-year-old, actually you're trying to find disease and um, your, your meta-analysis strongly also suggested how it changes behavior, improves practice, uh, physician practices, as well as adherence. So now on the adherence issue and utility, now that's a big complex issue for a young. So Heather, chime in, you being the youngest member on the group out here. Um, no risk, mild risk factors, no symptoms, just family history, mildly elevated LDL. Now asking you to commit to a statin for maybe 10 years, a pill a day, 365 times 10. How would you take that? It's not improving your symptoms. It's not really adding to any utility unless and until it prevents an event. That's a challenge that we are facing right now that how do I convince an asymptomatic individual to go on a pill and commit it for a lifestyle? What's your thoughts? What's your experience in this? Yeah, so, you know, I think uh, for, for a young person who may have, who may feel good, you know, they had an MI, but, you know, right now they feel fine. They've never taken a medication. They look at their peers and they look very healthy and they look like they're having, they, you know, this idea of going from, perfectly healthy to now someone who needs to take a medication, even one medication once a day is a big jump. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that really with, with younger patients is really about building a, a relationship and getting to know them. Uh, you know, a young person who is in their 30s, 40s may not care about living two years, you know, whether he lives to be 82 or 84, that's certainly not the case for some of our older patients. They may be focused on, well, am I able to do the things I wanna do? 
they want to be they might want to be independent they might have other sort of goals and i think taking a step back and thinking about oh what what does this person want what are these what are, what are the things that will motivate him or her to do the really tough things we're asking them to do sometimes which is to you know go to the gym you know every day or change their diet and and certain sometimes you know maybe starting a medication even if that we think that that's the right thing may not be the right thing on the first visit maybe giving them the giving them this sort of sense that they are that you know you you're not ready you don't think so that's fine we'll talk about this again uh, because again, you know, one of the things that we do have with some of these younger patients is we do we do have time. Uh, so I think that that's really for me. That's been uh, at least in my experiences that the communication has always been you know a bit more challenging. And some, uh, but but I think taking a step back and thinking about what is this person really prioritize and how can I use that to motivate their behavior. Uh, because really for, especially in a primary prevention population, that's really all we're doing is all we're doing is behavior change. And we have to create these incentives for them to get there. Uh, so I think that's really one of the, one of the key things, especially if you're going to give a young person who's never taken a medication a, a pill that, you know, at least if you look at the percentages, if you open a risk score, it may, the, the difference of benefit may not be you know, so dramatic, uh, but it's really going to be how we frame that. How do we think about what matters most to that person and then use that information to, you know, really guide our discussion. So that's at least been uh, been my experience with younger patients. And I think, you know, one of the advantages is that, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm just coming out of fellowship and I can just relate to them. I can, I can tell them, you know, I can put myself in their shoes and I can speak to them uh, in a way that they feel like they're speaking to someone who knows what they're what they're going through, but but I think that that's really the key is the relationship. Well, you know, this so far has been such a fascinating discussion, and I know we can keep on going, and we are almost at the end of the time. So let me ask, leave a one minute response for each one of you. What about the future? Now, just putting it together. Would you encourage, would you consider having a vaccine for LDL? Now we're talking about COVID-19 vaccines. What about if I give you an option that you can have an injection a year with your flu vaccine that will lower your LDL by 35%, almost on the same lines as with the statin. And then again, it's not too futuristic. We may have some option coming along in the next couple of years. Do you think that would play a major role for primary prevention or even primordial prevention? So Ron, your thoughts, and then Salim and Heather. I think it depends on the cost and safety. Obviously, if the cost is incredibly low and it's 100% safe, then sure, I think it's a, it's a good thing. But we have to remember that LDL is just one uh, one pathway and one target and even if we knock down ldl certainly on a population level will be very beneficial but i think people should not be uh, misconstrued that that uh, they're then not at risk and they don't have to worry about their blood pressure and their cigarettes and their diet and how they eat so certainly i think it would be favorable but it's not going to be kind of the, the magic pill or the magic injection or the magic uh, so salim uh, do you see that happening in the near future for us I think I, I tend to agree fully with uh, with what Ron just said. Uh, you know, it's it's the area under the under the curve that you have for risk factors. So if you take it to young individuals when they're getting their vaccine, 
but then you increase their physical activity, you reduce their BMI, you know, by a few points. If they continue with that good risk factor profile for 20, 30 years, you may see that 50, 60% risk reduction as well. So yes, the concept is novel, but I think we have a lot more things that are much cheaper, at least for now. Uh, but we need to have models of care where we can implement those in an effective manner in our patients. And I know we all struggle with that, but I would again come back to that. The, the concept is novel, but I think we have other opportunities here as well to work on lifestyle, which may actually pay more dividends than, you know, medications. Yes, I'm, I'm not ready to cross that bridge now. We need safety, efficacy, cost, all of those will be there. But I think we should not forget about the lifestyle piece, which is extremely important for this young group. Perfect. Heather. Yeah, and I think the, the you know, Ron said it, but, you know, if you have a medication that no one can afford, it's just going to be sitting on the shelf. I mean, we've seen this happen with all sorts of cardiovascular medications that, you know, they have great data, they're easy to use, they have great minimal side effects. But if you have a medication that no one can afford, uh, it's just not going to have the sort of, you know, market penetration that, you know, I think all of us would like. Now, having said that, you know, th th that case is easier to make in a system that is, you know, is more sort of population-based, such as, for example, the VA uh, or others. So I think that, you know, really, uh, and I think that, and that will be the key to not just these new medications, but really thinking about, you know, how do we expand the field of prevention as long as we keep reimbursing people, you know, for you know, MIs that they've already had rather than for MIs that were prevented, I think that, you know, prevention as a field is always going to be a step behind. So I think, you know, in some ways that, you know, our mission is going to be more than just, you know, the individual patient, but really advocating for a health system that um, uh, emphasizes uh, prevention rather than, you know, than just reaction. So again, all pearls of wisdom, population health, emphasis on lifestyle crimes, everything else for now cost is a major issue. And then and again, if you're re really truly moving towards the precision medicine aspect, as Ron pointed out, safety signals are gonna be key, critical out here. But more importantly, can we afford it? You're absolutely right. In the end, it's the population health approach. So just to summarize, thank you so much, everyone. I've learned a lot. I, I go more wiser and most likely apply a lot of this. So. Definitely the take home message is this is a growing epidemic, unfortunately, and we just need to grasp the reality that we'll be seeing a lot of young patients who are coming with an acute MI and stroke. Uh, we have to be wary about their differential risk factors and be cognizant of the fact that just because they are young, they are likely going to do well in the long term is probably a myth and actually we need to be much more aggressive. Um, the other thing is of course, um, in the prevention world, lifestyle, almost everything, but at the same time, every opportunity with healthcare access provides us to reassess and recalibrate. Thankfully, we have a lot of things at our options, simpler, cheaper, easy, accessible, with some novel new biomarkers like Ron alluded to LP little a, and an established ch cheaper option like calcium testing can really help us risk stratify. Um, now, adherence remains an issue in this population. How do we address that? Again, more education, more systemic outreach. At the same time, we are exciting. It's not all about LDL. As you pointed out, we didn't get much options to talk about glycemic control, uh, obesity management, hypertension, 
getting all of this as Celine pointed out each of these things is going to add so again having a holistic view and the question is how would our health system permit us to invest more into primordial prevention whereas less than five percent of our invest in investment goes into prevention we are still uh, I would say not in healthcare but disease care and as uh, primary pre preventive cardiologists, I think so a big role for us is in the advocacy for our policymakers so that the shift can truly happen in this space. But again, thank you so much. I'll just give a couple of minutes and see if we had any questions from uh, our viewers for, for everyone else. So it seems like nothing else. Um, Ron, any final words? I would love to hear Heather, Ron, Salim just a final word so good to see you it's been almost four months so i think so this is a great format to get in touch with each other yeah no thank you Coram. I, th I think you just uh, summarized it uh, beautifully i think this is a challenging uh, field and uh, heather i think uh, kind of nailed probably one of the most important points there that if we don't get reimbursed for doing prevention it, you know if we don't incentivize that uh uh, for physicians, for patients, for, for everyone, it's just not going to happen. So I think there's so many opportunities to, to optimize that. Uh, and on that, I'm really glad to, to see this even being discussed at a, at a venue like this. So congrats for putting this together and getting us all to talk about this. Yeah. And I'll say the same thing. It's, uh, it's wonderful to talk about it, uh, you know, uh, bringing this to, uh, to the front to, to have discussion on these. And I think, uh, I would just end by saying that it is a team sport. We know we have significant physician shortages. So I think there are two important things that where I think we need to look at it from a population perspective. One is that we need to use our entire CV team. So not just physicians, but our, our advanced practice clinicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, dietitians, pharmacists, because they can do a lot to address even these rural disparities we have because we just don't have enough physicians. And, and, and then the, the other aspect is to build on these telehealth models, but do them in a way that we take wellness to the patients rather than patients coming to us. I think we have a great opportunity now with all these legislations that have been passed in telehealth. It would have taken a decade. It was all done in a few months. How do we build on that to make sure that the disparities that persisted in the past we don't become victims of the same disparities, even with the telehealth model, because there are some signs there. Does everybody have that bandwidth they need to internet bandwidth to actually get on telehealth and have a nice quality visit with their clinician? So I think uh, there's a huge opportunity as well as we can take care of some of those threats that might be uh, might be lurking out there. But I'm glad that uh, got an opportunity to discuss this with you and Ron and, uh, and Heather and uh, really look forward to further discussions on this. So thank you. Heather. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, uh, Salim mentioned disparities, and I think at a time when all of us are really, really thinking about social justice, I think thinking about preventable heart disease, preventable strokes in young people is really not just a matter of, you know, health economics, but really is a matter of social justice. We know that uh, many of the racial disparities show up even so much more prominently in our patients with cardiovascular disease and so many other factors that affect them their entire lives and ends up with them coming to the emergency room with a premature heart attack or a stroke. So I think that that, you know, our mission is more than just, you know, talking about exercise and it's, it's really about improving people's lives. And I think that prevention really uh, is more important today 
especially from the lens of social justice and uh, health equity than ever before. Guys, thank you so much for spreading the word of prevention. I'm sure we'll have many more and we'll get much more opportunities to interact. And I'm hoping that uh, you will be back again. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Coram. Thank you. Good talking to everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's show. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and we'll love to hear from you and about your thoughts around stroke and acute MI in young patients. Send us a tweet using the hashtag CVNow and don't forget to tag us at DeBakeyCVEDU. If you like the show and want to show us support, please subscribe and send us a review. Tell us how we're doing and let us know what you think. You can find more digital cardiovascular education opportunities through DeBakey CV Education by following us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter.